Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. And welcome aboard, everybody. I am the aforementioned Sal, along with my co-host, the ever-genial Eagle One of Eagle Speak. Thank you very much for uh, coming on board for today's Midrats Midsummer Melee. Uh, regulars here know exactly what that means open mic, open topic. We even have open phones. And uh, Paul is already in the chat room. So if you'd like to scroll down to the bottom of the show page, if you're with us live, that's where you'll find the chat room. And we're open. If you have some uh, topics you would like for us to address during the course of the show, that is a great place to do it. And we we also like to walk the wire without a net. So if you want to call in, uh, you can give the studio a call at area code 347 308-8397. No reason to repeat it. It's right there on the show page. So, hey, go ahead and give us a call if you'd, you'd like to come in and ask us a question directly. Uh, otherwise, Eagle One, good afternoon. Hey, Sal. How are you doing today? Um, a little overly caffeinated, but that's probably not a, <laughs> a bad thing. So... I have to remind myself, I'm suppo- I need to be a slow-talking Southerner, not a fast-talking Southerner. Too much sweet tea, sugar, sugar and caffeine. <laughs> well, you know, that's, that's how the Western civilization was built. Uh, kick, I wanted to, to tap in today, just kind of kick things off. Uh, it's kind of a, a Debbie Downer. I'll put a, uh, I'll put a link to it into the chat room, uh, the Navy Times article by our friend Jeff. Uh, we uh, we saw preliminary warning. Vice Admiral Brown retired. Uh, he um, he went ahead and stepped out and said, "Hey, I'm going to get a letter of senior, uh, censure, and this is why I'm going to uh, throw a flag on the play here." But we're almost exactly at two years from the burning of the Bahamas Shard, and the, the SecNav issued retired Vice Admiral Brown a letter of censure which is basically just public shaming. It doesn't affect him in any way besides that. And then PAC Fleet is issued a punitive letter of reprimand to the uh, the CEO, Captain uh, Thorman, I think is how you pronounce his name, and XO, Captain Ray, and also the Command Master Chief, uh, Jose Hernandez. And you know, here we are two years after the burning. We have a seaman recruit who's been charged 
we have three pieces of paper. I think Packfleet took some money from the CO and XO, but um, it's the rounding error at the end of the year, I'm sure. Uh, there also um, have been some uh, NJPs that we haven't heard about. Let me see if I can find it in the article. Uh, Jeff summarizes it. And it's interesting that on a multi-billion dollar loss of a capital asset, we haven't heard more. Let's see here. I may have lost a point of other here we go the disposition decisions included six njps with guilty findings two njps with mass matter of interest filings and a letter of instruction two njp dismissals with warning one additional uh, mif five other lois three non-punitive letters of caution, and two letters to former sailors documenting substandard performance, and six no-action determinations, full stop. So I guess kind of rolling your way, is is two years for people to see something like this, is that about normal speed for uh, investigations? And yeah, I know we're, all, we're two times the length of World War II since Fat Leonard Actual was arrested, and that's still not resolved. Or is this just the way our justice system works to take so long? Well, uh, the answer is yes to all of the above. I mean, the first thing is that, you, like in the case of Vice Admiral Brown, I think he's correct. This is a political thing. He was the guy, wasn't he? The guy who was trying to, to get some action on the on the. Uh, he was he was on, the only on the peer. leader that wasn't. <laughs> Was it practicing duck and cover? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it's a political decision. He was going to, re- I don't know if he going to retire anyway, but he was leaving. He, got, he was going to leave his job within a month anyway after after this fire. Um, you know, so they, they, they had to make somebody high up uh, pay a price. He's going to pay a price, whatever that price is. I don't think much because I don't think they're going to be able to do anything because retirement pay. Uh, the, the, you know, they, they didn't kill anybody. They, they killed a few careers, the CO and the XO of the ship. Uh, I wouldn't want to be the guy who was the CDO at the time. He probably, whatever the NJP was, he got, you know, but it's, it's, it always ignores these kind of punishments, ignore the underlying issues, which we've discussed before. It's, and, and I think that that's, I wonder how much of the delay was trying to work through, uh, the decision process of what to do with these, the people involved without um, pointing out that this is part of a larger problem when you have your your uh, crews on board ships that are in the shipyard and all the, the risk that that poses to the crew and to the ship. Uh, and especially, I think, Sal McCargniano keeps pointing out, we don't have our own fireboats and all that stuff. I'm not, you know, that, there's a lot that could have happened differently. Some of that's command structure. Some of that is is we don't practice, you know, this, we do practice this sort of thing on ships, but sometimes the, the, the weekend, uh, CDO and his team, you know, it's just, it, just, it uh, I think it's more, it's a complicated problem, but the other answer is yes. If, if you look at the other investigations that are going on that involve the government, that things like the, uh, January 6th thing that the, 
the trial that they, whatever they're doing at the in Congress, uh, you know, it just takes a long time to sort through all this stuff and and try and figure out who did what when and all that. And I'm, I'm not too surprised it took a couple of years for this. Yeah, I just think it's, um, it's it takes away from I think a lot of people's confidence in the system that we. Uh, and I guess it's it's not too fast if you're the person who's on the receiving end of justice. But uh, you know, you mentioned uh, the January six. You know, how eighteen months? Some of those people have been sitting in the D.C. jail in, in solitary. Uh, it's just incredibly slow, and uh, I don't, you know, what you do want to learn or what you do want to inject into the system. Um, I don't know how we make it more efficient. Uh, I, I, the criminal system and the is is equally slow. Uh, it hasn't always been, and it's a it's a multi causal thing. But I think especially in circumstances like this, where the ship itself has already been sent to scrap. Um, again, I'm not I'm not a lawyer, but if you want to <laughs> if you want to take me to court for destroying something and you already destroyed the evidence, I'd rather be the, the defense counsel as opposed to prosecution. But uh, it's I I don't know how we we fix it, but there's got to be uh, a better way of doing things for circumstances like this because. How many how many ships have gone through maintenance cycles since this, et cetera, and so forth? Uh, how many more leadership seminars for new COs and XOs have come in? And uh, even if we are covering these things in-house, I think uh, along with a lot of other things, you can go back to a dozen years ago where they decided to classify in-serves that we've talked about here before, is the American people through their elected representatives – uh, they deserve to have more information shared. And we had another couple of COs since we did Midrats last that have been fired. Uh, and I understand the arguments for pro and con for sharing more information. But it just kind of fits a pattern that the American people and their elected representatives are not getting the level of transparency and accountability that they should have for their Navy in general and the military in a, in a broader sense and a representative republic. Uh, so it's a combination of we're not when the Navy doesn't like sharing information and when it does do stuff, it just takes so long. It's just it's not a good look. Well, but it's, you know, I, it's gone on for so long, sort of, I mean, when you rush to judgment, then you've got a problem. And if you don't rush to judgment, you've got a problem. So, you know, Admiral Kimmel and, and General Short and at Pearl Harbor, I mean, how many years after after they got <laughs> fired, you know, does it take to clear their names? Because, you know, what responsibility do they have? And it turns out that, you know, the, there were... Possibly, I mean, if you depend on which book you read, the book du jour on Pearl Harbor, uh, either right. Kimmel was was set up or and Short was set up, while while MacArthur, who, who uh, should have known what was coming since he was warned from that there was an attack 
you know, he he let his all his all the B-17s get destroyed and stuff. So, you know, I don't. It is it is not an equal justice system. And if you rush to judgment, there's a problem. And if you don't rush to judgment, obviously there's a problem. So, you know, I uh, and you're right. I think defense lawyers get in into this stuff, and maybe that's one of the reasons it takes so long is that everybody's trying to build a bulletproof case uh, against people these days, and uh, you know they know they're going to get sued or appealed or whatever, and and uh, it just you know it seems like it just never ends. Not not pleasant. But you know, at least at least something has been done. And if it's not the thing we would have thought would have been done, then and we still don't know what's the fate of this young man, the the guy who's actually accused of starting the fire. You know, uh, I'm sure there are a lot of people who would like to see a yard arm with a with a uh, old school punishment. But and you know, and he may very well be innocent. You know, when you, and you're right, this isn't anything new. It's it, it's people and it's human beings. Uh, like the the CEO of the Indianapolis, how many decades did it take for his name to find? I think it was actually after he passed away that yeah. – uh, what's the proper word? Exculpatory evidence that was actually just mm. record message, message traffic that had always been yep. available. It was yep. just classified and not brought out, showed that uh, Skipper didn't do anything wrong. It wasn't his fault. But uh, he – he was, um, yeah, boy, was he taken taken to task for the loss of the Indianapolis, which was a huge tragedy. That uh, you know, th- thank goodness for Jaws. Now more 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 American people know about the Indianapolis when you mention it. But uh, yeah, it made it to the popular. It's, uh, it's all horrific. I've, I'm sure you have as well. A couple of firsthand accounts of what those sailors went through. Uh, you can't create a horror movie worse. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I, I even more recently, I mean, we interviewed. Didn't we talk to to uh, the CEO of the was it the, which one was it the, the the one that got the missile and the the CEO? Uh, you know, they saved the ship, but the CEO won't get promoted because uh, some senator objected to his promotion. Remember that? Yeah, I that mean, happened to the skipper of the coal who had the uh, yeah the coal the rib yeah. up next to your ship. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, well, I think that's what we're talking about. Yeah, that, that's who I am talking about. Uh, yeah, the CEO of the coal. I mean, here's a guy who's been selected for promotion. Navy says he didn't do anything wrong. But Senator Warner, I think it was, said, no, this Good shall one. not stand. Yeah, I don't uh, – you know, you, just, you never know how this stuff's going to come out. But it's – I'm sure that – what was his name? Lippold? Was that the guy? Uh, yeah, Kirk Lippold. Great guy. Yeah. Yeah, I think he if he's if he's a bit miffed, I don't blame him a bit. Yeah, not to mention the fact that uh, to see so much of what people look at happened to be the interference of the the senior senator from Virginia, but when you look at the the actions of his crew which again, you know, whether you look at the Cole, whether you look at the Fitzgerald, uh, and what the McCain it went to, I was uh, talking to a few people uh, a couple weeks ago about this. Is the one thing the U.S. Navy does do real well is in our culture is damage control. If we could take, um, and, and sometimes that can be frustrating for people. I know our demands on that is creating a few extra challenges on the Constellation class, but. Uh, it's okay to be really good in damage control because when you're not good at it, 
that's how you lose hundreds of sailors and not dozens of sailors. But yeah, the 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 story of of what that crew did to save the coal uh, is on par with what our our sailors did in the blink of an eye uh, with the Fitzgerald and the McCain more recently. Uh, those yeah. are those are good stories. That it, it's a shame with the coal that uh, that that story and that's that's one of the things that uh, I'll have to dig in and find a link to that mid reps episodes because we have you know get new listeners all the time who may have missed that episode. I'll add that in the show notes. Uh, well, let's, let's talk a little that, about uh, the, need, the need for damage control, because I know you advertise we're talking about Snake Island. <laughs> and uh, uh, one of the questions you have is, uh, we were discussing kind of pre-show, is if you're, if you're going to bring your ships close to, to shore, um, and you're now within the range of, of coastal artillery or anti-ship cruise missiles and all that stuff, uh, you better be good at damage control, because that's, that's a pretty dangerous area to go in. And, and if you can't go in those areas anymore, what systems do you have that will allow you to to do the things you're trying to do with your with your ships? If you could go in that into those waters, yeah, we'll we'll never see it, unfortunately. But I would really love to see an objective uh, report, what our aviation buddies call mishap report, from the, the crew of the Moskva, because uh, I'm you know, glad you mentioned you know Snake Island and uh, kind of the the renaissance of coastal artillery, whether that's missile or guns or otherwise, is a surface ship. You're the, everybody on watch has to be ready every second, every minute, every moment. Your equipment's got to work. You've got to have redundancy. You can't have the hidden cas reps uh, because the people that are ashore that want to take you out they're going to pick their moment for, of their attack when they're going to have their best information, their time, and the most favorable stuff, and then they're going to hit you at their leisure. You can't pick when the enemy is going to engage you when you're inside their missile range. And uh, that that would be very interesting to see. And again, we'll never see it. But of all, because when you look at a, a Slava-class cruiser, they look like the Death Star, but what you don't know what the material condition is of the sensors and the actual weapons, um, what their crew rotation was right, what their qualifications were, what warnings, if any, they had. Uh, there are lots of lots of good lessons there for, for any Navy to take in, but that's the one thing that, that I keep coming back to is they have the Ukrainians' internal produced Neptune. Now they have more... Um, harpoons ashore than they, they know what to do with. And they have, in addition to taking out the Moskva, they've taken out an oil rig, they took out a tug, uh, and a few other items. I think a lot of countries who can't afford a Navy or just they don't have the geography to be able to get a Navy out of port before somebody hits them, that that's that's a growth area, I think, because even though on paper, and I think we've talked about it a few times over the last decade, um, when you look at it on paper, if you have the, the good overhead ISR, which, again, blending with the technology of drones and satellite, for not much money, you can get pretty good over-the-horizon targeting information. The, the porcupine quills have all of a sudden got a lot longer, a lot sharper, and a lot more in number. 
Uh, that is something that I hope a lot of people, both uh, um, in the service community looking at defensive armament, are are thinking about. The last time America had to worry about it was, I believe it was the USS Mason, when the Houthi rebels fired a, a Gen 1 or maybe Gen 2 uh, anti-ship cruise missile at them. And depending upon who you talk to, they were really good or really lucky, and, and they took it out. But when you're looking at whether it's the Ukrainian Neptune or the, the version of the harpoons that I believe the Danes and the British have given them, that's a, that's a different level. There's, uh, there's a lot to contemplate there for, for people on both ends of the equation. Well, we, we, we saw the, the uh, Lebanese, well, I guess it was Hezbollah, uh, take on them. I mean, this has been going on for so long that you know, we forget about the, the missile attacks against, against uh, surface ships. But the silkworm threat during the, the uh, first Gulf War, or Desert Storm, whatever it was, you know, they, they were shooting, uh, attempting to get the, uh, the battleship. I'm not sure silkworm would have done all that much damage to the Iowa or whoever was up there at the time. But, you know, it was a threat. We knew it was a threat. And we know uh, from, from the, uh, the Falklands War that uh, anybody who can fly an airplane far enough to, to launch their exosets poses a threat to, to ships. And, you know, that in reading uh, the 100, 100 Days book by the Admiral Woodward, it uh you know they they were really lucky i mean they were lucky in so many ways uh to to pull off the Falklands thing and you know captain wayne hughes warned about this uh, he's been preaching be careful about those shore based missiles what are you going to do uh you know you're going to have to have greater range we're going to have to be uh don't put all your eggs in one basket i think is one of his Concepts, you know, we 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 kept going bigger. We put everything in one giant amphit. We put everything in one giant um, uh, ship. So you got you know an entire marine expeditionary force and three or four uh, ships. Well, that's great, except that that means there's only three or four or five or eight missiles necessary to take those ships out. And we go, well, you know, we will we'll put all the stuff on Guam, and we'll and that'll That'll uh, th- that'll be sort of safe, and we'll guard them with missile uh, defense stuff. You know, if if you're the Chinese, if you're the the Wombatties or somebody, and you want to look at how do you fight your war? You don't design your your equipment to go at the strength of the U.S. You go to the, where the weakest places are. So the Chinese have done a brilliant job of that with these. And I know we had uh, Blake and his uh, co-author on about the the problems attendant uh, with with shooting missiles against aircraft carriers. Those problems are diminished if you're shooting against a fixed point like Guam or any of the Atinian or any other islands of the Marianas chain. And, uh, you know, it is, a, it is a good case for not having uh, fixed bases, which are easy to attack, easier to attack. And But then we go back to the issue of, well, if we don't have fixed bases, what kind of bases are we going to have? And how do we put them out of far enough out of harm's way that we can strike without getting struck back uh, while, before we can move that that mobile base from one place to another. And one of the math I was doing in my head, because um, one of the things I wrote about again uh, was the successful efforts the Chinese have made 
in the western and central Pacific, making friends with the uh, island chains that a lot of Americans fought and died. We assumed we were entitled to have access to them, and that's changed a little bit. But that, in addition to South China Sea, is uh, kind of like what the Ukrainians did with Snake Island and the Chinese could very well do to us if they wanted to. You have these small islands, relatively small, uh, with fixed bases. If you have long-range precision fires, uh, as an old TLAM guy, you can game that out, and you can take these things out and make them unusable and almost unlivable if you want to. If you do that moving west and southwest, then I look over the shoulder and go, okay, what's our inventory? What's our production ability? Will we run out of precision weapons that we can use at range before we get near the Chinese uh, lines? That's why the Chinese are doing what they're doing. And you cannot produce, we cannot produce the number of precision weapons that we need in the case of, of war. Somebody mentioned uh, last week a similar issue and uh, that I had completely forgotten about, the 1915 shell crisis at the beginning of the First World War. Nobody believed that you know, the war would go on that long, and all of a sudden the British found themselves with no production capacity to be able to meet demand, and eventually they got there. And a lot of people forget the American arsenal of democracy. One way that we were able to just explode out of the gate in 41 and 42 was because we started rearming um, and selling a lot to the Europeans, 37, 38, 39, 40. So we had a few years uh, head start. And I think that has something to do with why people talking about you know, the Davidson window and stuff, they go, okay, if you want to get ready to go in 27, then we need to start bumping things up two years ago. It, you just can't turn production on overnight. And what do you do when you run out of production? Well, it's, it's what do we keep saying? Logistics, logistics, logistics. Not only do you have to have the the capacity to produce this stuff, you have to have the the capacity to get the stuff out to the people who are who are shooting it up. And uh, trust me, when we were when we were bobbing around off Vietnam, there were plenty of times we ran out of certain kinds of of uh, ammunition for the destroyers and the and the uh, cruisers, and I mean, I remember C-5s being flown into Subic to offload ammunition to be sent, put on the ammunition ships to take them out to, to where we could rearm the, uh, you know, some of those destroyers. And it was, you know, <laughs> we, were, we were so low on some of the inventory uh, that, you know, they were using uh, uh, shells that dated, I mean, they were, I don't think they were pre-World War II, but they were they were not shortly made uh Perhaps shortly after World War II, so you know we're, we're you're looking at a pretty long time, and uh, there's always some questions as to whether some of the damage that was done to to a couple of the cruisers out there in the gun mounts wasn't caused by uh, some of that antiquated ammunition. So, you know, yeah, you've got to produce the stuff, and then you've got to be able to store it, and you've got to keep maintaining it, and you've got to get it where it's got to go, uh, and it's got to be protected to get it there, assuming that your your opponent figures, well, well they've got this long supply chain, uh, and they've got to come to us, because we're, we are a, uh, a uh, territorial power. 
we don't really have the capacity to go get them in their home waters, but they're going to make it really hard for us to get into their home waters. And, uh, you know, how many submarines does it take to, to cause a, a ripple in your uh, supply chain if, if they sink one or two ships en route to Westpac, especially when we're making ships bigger and bigger and carrying more and more stuff on them? You know, it's, it is a question, and I, I'm sure that, or somebody at some war game is, is mapping all this stuff out. But it is a, uh, I think it's a real challenge. The American people need to understand how difficult it is to fight uh, a war over 6,000 miles of ocean away from uh, from our, our uh, um, U.S. coast and not, you know, and not uh, not keeping in mind that we don't have all this stuff stored in Hawaii and Guam and uh, you know any of the other islands that are actually U.S. possessions in the in the Western Pacific. And that's one of the things that I've been scratching my head about is the the NDA NDAA that was recently came out. It's got tons of all these. Um, all these amendments that have added on to it, and I just I haven't looked at all of them. I, this week, I'm hoping to be able to to you know, take a couple of hours and, and burn through it. But the one thing that broke about the background noise is uh, the desire to have you know, basically an oversight commission, a special commission to look over the Navy, and of course, um, and I. I like Admiral Fogo a lot. I just happen to disagree with him and the Navy League's position on this. And others are going, no, 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 this is a horrible thing. We don't want it. We just need your support. We don't need more oversight. Uh, we've talked about it here. Most people know my opinion that, no, we need more oversight. I really think Big Navy, it's it's missing an opportunity here because you have a commission. You're going to get attention. And, you know, like we kind of tell our – where we have guests on Midrats on the uh, – in the pre-show discussion, we tell them, you know, hey, and D.C. rules apply. If you don't like the question we ask you, answer one you wish we asked. You know, it's okay. The Navy can go in because when you look you – know, when you talk about the logistics and the fact that we have these big ships that carry so much, and we've all seen it. And we could actually make the argument. In peacetime, that makes sense. And we've passing out of living memory contested seats. And it's easy to sell big ships carrying a lot because it's more efficient. It costs less per ton. You don't have to have as, as many mariners to, to run them. Um, but in wartime, that, that peacetime accounting efficiency puts you one ship away from being operationally ineffective. And that's just one issue of multiple issues, that if Congress is going to have an oversight committee, instead of throwing up its defensive walls and obfuscating and throwing buzzword salad at the congressman, tell our story. Put them on, a, put them on account. Okay, you know, congressman, if, if you don't like this, well, this is the type of ship y'all are, are making us build. And you put yourself on a report there a little bit too. Or, yes, we would love to do this, but this is the only money you've given us to build ships on. And, yeah, they'll come back with how we've misused the money for the last <laughs> few decades. Um, but I think that's an opportunity. If Congress is, is going to invite you to dance, then dance. But use it to your advantage. And that's one of the many topics 
if we could, an oversight committee, that we could, the imperial we here, uh, the Navy and Navalists and whoever's invited can turn the tables towards something that's very productive. And that's one of the things that I would like to see because you know the map, I know the map. Uh, Sal Marcagliano and John Conrad, who I think we've name-dropped them three episodes in a row, but their their corner is, is critical right now. They know the math. We're fooling ourselves if we think that we can sustain uh, a large combat operation across the Atlantic, much less across the Pacific, if those waters are contested. We just we don't have the holes unless we're going to go steal other countries' holes. It's just not there. So that you, know, you, you triggered me a bit there with that discussion, but it's one of those things that if we do find ourselves in a major war, you know, before I assume room temperature, I know that I'm, I'm going to see people going, "Why didn't anybody see this?" And no, it's, it's no, you didn't see this. Everybody else has seen it because. People smarter than you and me have been ringing this bell for a long time. And, and you mentioned Wayne Hughes earlier, and we talked about him a little bit in the, um, in the pre-show. But a lot of these things that, that, that we talked about here, I don't know about you, but I've kind of stolen some of Wayne Hughes' work. Great minds have been beating this drum for a while, but it just hasn't burned through the, the peacetime complacency on how we build things. Yeah, I, I think that's right. You know, we, we have, I think MSC has 17 prepositioned ships. Uh, most of that, I mean, some of them are for expedi- expeditionary sea bases. Some of them are to help transfer stuff from, from the uh, area where the ships are to the shore. And some of them are supplies for the Marines and, and uh, if we're going to send the Marines in. The question is, uh, you know, they're they're great big ships. They're heavily loaded, and you know, they make nice targets. I I keep saying the same thing, but you know, if you're going to have them, you don't want those things uh, where they're easy to get, and that is a that is a danger that we. I don't think 17 is enough. I don't think we have enough uh, afloat ammunition supplies bobbing around out there to you know to to have the uh, resupply capacity we need because it's pretty easy to go Winchester on a on a ship where you've got I don't know uh, 70 launchers I don't remember what the capacity is of some of these things anymore but you know you've got and then they've got to be reloaded and and I, you know, I know they've been working on being able to reload those reload at sea some of those missiles but it is an issue and it's going to be an issue for a long time and and it 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 goes against the grain but we need to be quicker, longer ranged, uh, have have many more, and this is the whole distributed warfare thing. There's no reason a lot of these big ships can't be uh, fitted with uh, some kind of launch cells. They can't tow barges. I mean, you know, I, I beat the drum for these these missile barge concept and, and other stuff, but it's just that we really need to have the, the capacity out there, much greater capacity we have to, to fend off uh, what may, we may be facing. And I think a lot of it is is um, our acquisition system doesn't allow experimentation like we would like. Um, I don't. Uh, I reserve the right to be wrong, um, but I don't agree with a, a lot of the things that the commandant is doing 
to adjust the, the, the Marine Corps. But inside his – at the length of the short leash he's given, um, he's doing a lot, experimenting a lot, coming up with some, some, some nice ideas. But, you know, you talked about your missile barge concept. It, when you look bef- in the First World War and the Second World War as interim steps – uh, they by this by the third, second and third year of the war they got chewed up, but uh, they had to get ships at, at afloat and working. They did auxiliary cruisers. They were able to make short-term adjustments till something better came along in number. And there are ways. Whether I'm, I would rather have a converted merchant ship, where if you have a shortage of X number of VLS cells, and hopefully you have the weapons to put in them. And using traditional Navy ships, you have to build Y number with them being commissioned in the mid-2030s to mid-2040s. If that's too late, then okay, then how do we get them faster? It's easier to build uh, VLS cells than it is to build ships. So, you know, how do you convert Kind of long about you mentioned the Falkland Island War, the what they do with the Atlantic conveyor. That wasn't a good light carrier, but <laughs> it's better than nothing. Um, how do you convert a bulk carrier to instead of the places they're dumping soybeans in, they dump uh, a bunch of Mark Forty One VLS cells, and you put a C Ram four and a half, sprinkle some holy water on it, and, and get it out there. That type of experiment, it'd be great to see done, but people talk about it for a dozen years. Uh, I know you and I have talked about similar stuff like that for over a dozen years, but the Navy can't produce something like that because of our requirements process and also because there's a little, lots of institutional reasons why we don't want to experiment with stuff like that. But that would be a wonderful thing if people in, I don't know, 2012 said we're going to do this we would have that ship right now deploying figuring it out okay how do we how do we get the data that we need to get to the data to fill the cells how do we do cooperative engagement capability you know just and if one experiment works then you could do more it's kind of the same reason why um the x47 bravo the uh UAV that landed and took off on a carrier back in 2011, and then we said, okay, <laughs> and killed it. Uh, I don't know how we get back, to, back that experimentation. You saw a lot of, in the 20s and 30s and the 50s and the 60s, uh, that it's been done before. It's part of the naval tradition. But we just, we saw a little bit of it with the Ponce. Uh, and we, again, that's another Midrats episode we did years ago. Uh, but besides that, on a on a deployable scale, we just don't do it anymore. Yeah, that's you know that that does raise other issues. I mean the the uh, the concept of a VL of the it's already out there. The Russians invented uh, they they have those you know their club club missiles in a box, uh, and you know that is not a concept that is all that complicated. I don't know how that things are targeted, but, you know, I assume that if they, a, a threat that needs to be uh, uh, looked at and why, you know, 
they could they, you know you just think of the damage when you stick when you get a uh, a large uh, container ship like the uh, evergreen whatever it was that got stuck in in the Suez canal or you know you have a grounding somewhere in in the thimble uh, Shoals Channel in, in Norfolk, or somebody clogs up the uh, Ballast Point entry to uh, to San Diego. You know, what are you going to do? You, 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 these things, um, you know, we always, always, I've always thought there must be some contingency plan that I'm unaware of, uh, which is probably good because I'm aware of it. I probably blab it, but you know, it, it, these are concerns. We've got all these choke points in our own ports, and we, I guess, we like to pretend that it's not a not a problem. In World War II, the, you know, they had anti-submarine nets across the the uh, entrance to uh, San Francisco Bay. I assume they did that in in Pearl Harbor and. Uh, and you know what all the other fleet bases we had in in washington and and uh other places but you know they, the threats are are uh everything's more powerful now now that people are are taking a look at this stuff but you you know you you always need to red team this stuff uh, i saw that uh, uh Mershenko, the the original red team guys uh died the other day it was kind of a shame but yeah well, well, who's our red team saying uh, and, and why are we not listening to them to say, well, this design is good, but here are the problems, you know, and what are we going to do about this, and have you thought about that? And I, don't, I don't know if we do that in war games uh, enough or, or whether they're canned enough that we don't, uh, we don't worry about it. But we really need to get people like uh, John Conrad and Sal Mercogliano and, and the merchant guys involved in this stuff because, you know, they, they understand that you got big oceans, you got problems with ships, and, and the, the, the maintenance and readiness level of our uh, uh, reserve force ships that are supposed to be activated. You know, it, it, we've been talking about that for the last 10 years. I don't, I'm not sure the ships, uh, the, the quality of those has improved any and whether we're what the replacement plan is and when they're when that replacements are going to come online and you know we've got to talk about stopping the restrictions on buying foreign made alls if it's you know if it's if if it's a ship and it floats and it can meet our needs i don't uh, does it make a difference that it was made in in uh, germany or in south korea or in uh, in japan where they've got some pretty darn good shipyards yeah, and again, that would go into if, if Congress wants to have a, a commission, okay, that's great. There's actually a great opportunity here to, you know, push back against one of our favorite topics, which is the, the sea blindness. And, uh, yeah, if, if you don't tell your story, nobody else is. Um, and, you know, one of the things that has broken over the background noise, uh, and we talked a little bit about it in the, in the pre-show, uh, even though he he hates the use of the word uh, with his name in it, the Davidson window. You know, one of the interesting things, and, and Jerry Hendricks has talked about this uh, pretty good, is it folds into one of the regular comments that we've had about uh, the challenge of China. You know, will she will she go old before she goes rich? Uh, and you know, rich gives her the ability to have that huge military. And there's a, and I'll, I'll link it in the show notes as well. A lot of that's based upon Chinese, not just economic growth, but their demographics. Because when a nation reaches a certain tipping point of those who are over 65 relative to their you know, military age population, uh, the nation and their economy functions quite differently. 
and nobody has seen a situation like this on a global scale uh, since the Black Death uh, with population shrinkage. Uh, and this is going to be even different because it's, um, it has to do with an older population and it's natural. And there's a just, when you look at the intellectual quality of those involved in what they're talking about, I, I can't recommend it enough. But last week a, a podcast came out. It was on Sam Harris's podcast. Um, but uh, the, his two guests have also shared it on their individual networks as well. But on the same podcast, you have Sam Harris, Ann Bremer, and Peter Zahn, Zahn, Zihan, Z-E-I-H-A-N, um, three great people just looking at larger issues and trends. And they brought up something directly related to that is um, – Obviously, this is a, a Chinese-based uh, entity, but it's, that makes it even more interesting. The Shanghai Academy of Social Sciences that does their demographic data earlier this month uh, updated their numbers. And before, and COVID has a little bit to do with this, but, but not too much, but it, they said that their population would peak previously at 2029. What the report that came out early July said is like, no, no, we've our, our population has already peaked, and uh, we are now shrieking at a ratio of 0.49 per thousand. What that works out to, um, they said in a few years, it's going to uh, be at 1.1 percent a year. And there can be funny things when you extrapolate out of 2070 because things change, but that the next 10 years demographics. One thing is it's math. People are born, you know who's born, and they're going to be living 70 to 80 years. You can track that. So there's a lot of predictability there inside of, dec of decades. But they're looking at their population shrinking now at about 1.1% a year. And when you've got a population of 1.4 billion, that's 15,400,000 a year. That's roughly between the population of Belgium and the Netherlands shrinking every year. And by 2040, they will have uh, 2060. Correction, they will have lost the equivalent of the entire U.S. population. And by 2079, I won't be around to see it, but my kids and grandkids may. Um, they'll be half the population they are today. Now, what that got me thinking a little closer to home. It's okay if the Davidson window and all that discussion and pontificating revolved around China's population peaking in 2029, but instead it peaked at 2022. That's a seven-year backup. So uh, that the center mass of that threat window is kind of now. So one or two things: either the risk of conflict is greater now for the next few years than it had been before, or did China already go through the get old phase? Uh, and as a result, the chance of them willing to risk war lessens. I think both are interesting observations on that demographic data, but I don't think we have good templates to to look at. Yes, during the during the Black Death, there were still huge wars going on, but the Black Death killed everybody. This aging. Um, I'm not really sure uh, from a military point of view 
how to read that maximization point going from 2029 to 2022? Yeah, it's a it's an interesting question, and it's a question that that uh, what can you know what. In addition to their declining population, they've got some serious problems going on in their economy. And so what what do authoritarian states do when faced with uh, issues like a decline in population and their economy is in trouble and they have to have some uh, do something to kind of change the, the subject and the, even in their homeland where they are, are so authoritarian? Does that make the risk of doing them doing something with respect to Taiwan uh, hotter now than it's been in a long time? And if so, uh, what are our plans to do anything about it? And is, you know, is, is, is the defense of Taiwan is essentially Taiwan's job? And the question is, as I think you alluded to the porcupine problem before, are they a big enough porcupine that China doesn't feel they can, they can, uh, uh, chew it at this time or whether it's uh, uh, something they're going to try and wait for. I don't know the answer to those, but they're good questions. That's where I think these are the types of issues that uh, the old, uh, not strategic studies group, that's another group of old folks, a net assessment, office of net assessment. I think they used to chew on these items, and I'm, I'm sure they I know they went, they've gone through the Chinese scenario in a variety of ways. I haven't been briefed into it. But I would hope that this latest demographic data will, be, will have them thinking about it and thinking about it in, in detail because, uh, again, it's, it's something there aren't good templates on. We have good templates on uh, – Types of navies you need to fight with, though people don't like to, to look at the templates. We we are getting an extended live fire exercise in Ukraine that's validating some ideas and invalidating others uh, if, if people are willing to look at it. But I find that the demographic uh, wild card here infinitely fascinating because the future belongs to those that show up. And Japan population, South Korea. I think South Korea is going to collapse faster than Japan. Um, I don't know what North Korea, but South Korea will. Uh, that depopulation stress, does that uh, increase conflict or decrease conflict? Uh, you can talk to what the cool kids call black-pilled. Um, you know, white-pilled people see everything as positive. The black-pilled people thinks everything's going to be a nightmare. Um, they think that it's going to lead to more conflict because the uh, countries mostly in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, that their their demographics, whether you're looking at Egypt, Ethiopia, or the uh, countries around Nigeria, they're going to have to migrate, and there's going to, that's where it's going to be an interesting conflict to see. I don't know if interesting is the right word, but we'll see in about 2040, 2050 how that how that plays out. But I'm more concerned with the the immediate threat are a partial threat from, from China. I don't know if, uh, if the demographics are bad and that manifests itself economically, whether China just didn't have enough juice in their booster 
uh, and they're going to run out of steam here soon, which would be good for global peace, it would be good for the Taiwanese, it would be good for us. I don't think we're, we're, we're safe at this point because you do have to look at capabilities, not intentions. And I think for the next few years, when you, you look at Chinese capability, it's increasing. And you have to respect that, and you, you've got to, to, to keep an eye on it, uh, specifically uh, what they're doing in the, their near abroad. And I think uh, that, if you back up a little bit, when you look at Japan, when you look at South Korea, when you look at Vietnam, uh, even Malaysia, Indonesia, we're working closer with the Australians, and even the Indians are a little more of a player. If we and our friends like that, if we play it right and play it strong enough, um, at least at sea and in the near abroad, things might work out pretty well through this little tender moment. But I, I still think the 2020s are going to be a very, very tender moment. If we can get, if we can get through 2030 without a major conflict, uh, we might get lucky. Uh, so far, so good. I just, uh, it got kind of, I think two episodes ago, we, we talked about it, that it depends upon whether the information that comes out of Ukraine uh, inflames the odds of conflict or whether that's going to help dampen things. Uh, that's a good question. Yeah, I, you know, if someone had... Somebody predicted uh, that uh, Russia would invade Ukraine. They would. They wanted Crimea back. They want Ukraine back. Uh, but it's you know, it's, um, the resistance has been pretty impressive. I'm not sure that Ukraine can defeat Russia. I'm not sure Russia can defeat Ukraine with the help they're getting. But it is a. Uh, it is <laughs> there is a a lesson to be looked at because why did why does putin go in there you know what is what is in his mind as he decided to do what he was doing and he got away with the first phase with the crimea stuff uh, and he may have succeeded in getting away with some of the second phase but you know what does this do to and now we've got every, you know all these new uh, with finland and and uh, sweden joining nato uh, what what is it what is it you know what what good is is nato is nato uh are, are we really if poland gets touched by this war uh if uh, uh lithuania were ever cut off the access to uh, uh kaliningrad is is uh you know they're a nato country are we going to stand up with them if russia gets you know aggressive there it, it and and you know i always always look at germany and, and question what Germany is doing, and I, I don't pretend to understand German politics, but uh, it, it, they seem to say one thing, do another, uh, offer things, and then take it away. Do you, do you understand what they're doing? Because you, you're more familiar with that area than I am. I think I think the Germans are trying to find a way that they can find something beneficial for Germany. They're, they're in a hell of a problem. They, the only energy they produce internally is coal and not very clean coal at that, uh, especially as they've got a coalition government with the SPD and the, and the Greens, 
which are leftist and more leftists, uh, they're going to get rid of their nuclear power plant uh, plants, plural. They're going to decommission those, which is the cleanest, most reliable energy. They think they're doing some pretty neat things about uh, being able to diversify their natural gas import ability outside of Russia because they're Germans. They're very good at this engineering and trying to make it happen. But there are some realities about Germany. You know, again, their demographics are horrible as well. Uh, they are a economy that relies on exports. That requires a lot of energy. They seem to be doing everything possible to increase the cost of doing business in Germany uh, from an energy and other perspectives for the folks. I just think they have shaky leaders who are making decisions for ideological reasons, not for reasons that are in the best interests of the German people or their allies. Uh, unfortunately, uh, you're seeing something similar in the Netherlands um, where their their interests are focused on ideological things, not responsible statecraft looking after people. And they, the big card is going to be this fall and winter. Uh, hopefully, Europe, Northern Europe especially, will have a gentle winter, will not have a harsh winter. But from the front lines in Ukraine going west, you're going to have to heat homes. Uh, you're going to have to keep economies going. And uh, Northern European winters uh, can be very demanding on those two things. How that impacts inflation, I don't know. You know, when you look domestically, a lot of people like to uh, make you know very fair comments about the problems that we have economically here in the U.S. and some of the failures in our political leadership. But when you look at the U.S. dollar's appreciation against other currencies, it's not because we're great; it's because they're worse, and the Europeans have big problems. And uh, this war in Ukraine and Russia, how is it going to look? when it approaches its first year, uh, that's that. That's a wild car. I don't, it all depends on how things come at the, uh, come wintertime. All these Western weapons are only now starting to, to make their presence known on the battlefield, and there's more in the pipeline. But again, going to your question about, you know, what's going on with Germany, Germany's focused on internal issues. They're, they're not a leader in NATO. Uh, the French, I think, uh, doubled down on thinking Russia was going to win this early and got a bit over their skis here. And I think the former Soviet republics and former Warsaw, Warsaw Pact members that are in NATO right now, I think that's where your your center mass is taking place. And that block is going to make any attempt in Western European NATO, whether you're talking about the Germans, the French, and the Italians, to uh, try to force Ukraine to come to some accommodation. That's that's a pretty strong division in the alliance. And at least on the U.S. side, um, the Biden administration appears to be more aligned with the Central European than the Western European view on uh, the events in Ukraine. Break, break. Uh, outside of the U.S., the top advocate for Ukraine has been the United Kingdom. 
uh, and they have a leadership struggle. I I haven't been tracking it well enough to know, you know whoever gets to be the new prime minister, if they're going to have the same level of enthusiasm that Boris Johnson did for defending or supporting Ukraine. I think they will, but that's also another wild card that will manifest itself in the early fall. So uh, unless Russia does a lightning strike and Kiev out by Halloween, uh, the, 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 the fall and early winter, uh, that's a big unknown that's going to have a big impact. And Germany's not going to be part of the solution. They're going to continue to be part of the problem. Yeah. Well, on that cheerful note, we should probably <laughs> uh, wrap this show up. What have we got coming up in the future? Do you have any idea? Um, don't have anybody signed up for sure for for the next week. Got a couple of uh, uh, irons in the in the fire, so to speak. But a lot of people are doing these things called vacations. I don't know how, how they're how they're managing that. But uh, hopefully, nobody decided to go to England to get away from the the heat down here because <laughs> they're having Florida like weather up in the UK. I hope everybody's all right up there because they're, they're not used to it. But uh, besides that, I'm going to try to stay out of trouble. That's always a good plan. And I see in comments that uh, Paul, uh, who's always here with us when we're live, uh, he's going to be uh, on vacation until the, the 7th of August. See what I mean? Even Paul is leaving us this summer. So we'll yeah, I'm, but I think we need to I need, we need to check his vacation schedule. I'm not sure he's entitled to that. I didn't sign the chit. Hey, yeah, um, yeah, we have we have exceeded our hour. So, uh, Paul and and we even had John in the in the chat room today. I appreciate y'all coming in and joining us, and everybody else is with us live or on the podcast. And if you made it this long, that means that you are a fan of the Mid Rats podcast. We only do this now and then, but if you have a chance, um, give us a five star, give us a verbal review. What that does is in the search engines out there for podcasts, if people are looking for uh, maritime issues or national security issues, MidRats will will pop up in their search a little bit more. And if you can't give us a five-star review, then don't give us one at all. And uh, besides that, I appreciate everybody joining us, and we'll catch you again on another edition of MidRats. Hope you have a great Navy day. Cheers. Maloney wants to marry me, and so leave the strand and pick a billy, or you'll be to blame. For love has fairly drove me silly, hoping you're the same. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary.